0: Good morning. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm so glad to see you here back for the second week of our study, Coming Home, The Promises and Providence of God. We're going to study Ezra and Nehemiah together. Over the holidays, the Christmas holidays, I developed a new habit. At a friend's recommendation, I went out and purchased the DVD collection of the PBS series called Downton Abbey. And I need to tell you it's a great story, and I'm hooked. And several of the male members of my household are hooked as well. The only thing I don't like about this series is at the end of each episode, when you're watching it on the DVD, the story stops very abruptly, and there are no scenes or previews to show you a little glimpse of what's coming in the next episode. I don't like this because I like a great story and I like to know what's coming next. I used to think that television executives were so smart that they were the ones who thought this up, show you a great story and then show you the great scenes of what's coming next. But as I was studying Ezra, I realized TV executives didn't didn't discover this. God did. God started telling us these great stories In the Bible, and then through the prophets, through the revelation, giving us a little bit of the scenes of what is to come. And God's our creator. He knows exactly what's best for us. He knows we love a good story and we learn and make personal applications from other people's experiences. But He also knows we need to know a little bit about what is coming next. That's how we keep all of this life in the proper perspective. So we love these stories that God's given us in the Bible because they tell us His story. They tell us about His people, but they also help us learn about God. They help us learn theology. Through these stories, we learn about God's character, His nature, and we learn about God's purpose for the world. Through these stories, we see God's providence as He controls all the world events, always moving the world toward His purpose. And God's purpose is always the same. God's purpose is that the world would recognize him as God, would know him, would turn toward him, would live in a relationship in communion with him, that God's people would choose to follow God. That's God's purpose. So in all of these Old Testament stories, God is showing the world who he is, so they will turn to him. And then in the New Testament, he shows the world exactly who he is, is by sending his son Jesus Christ in the flesh so the world could see God up close and see him on human territory listen to what Hebrews 1 3 says this is talking about Jesus the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word So from the beginning of time, God is calling out a group of people to be his own people. And then in the New Testament, through Jesus' sinless life and his sacrificial death on the cross, God's people could have their sins permanently forgiven. They could be in good standing with God. They could approach God. They could know him. They could rest in assurance that they would live with him in heaven one day. That is God's great purpose for the world. That's God's great story. And God tells us in the Bible that he's not rushing the world to the end of the story. He is being patient and waiting so that everyone would have an opportunity to know God, to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and live in relationship with God. That's part of God's great story. And within his story, he's given his people a part to play. Through all of time, God's people have been called to serve God's purpose and to live in the world as living messengers or as missionaries, as you might say, to live in a way that shows the world who God is. So as we study these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, let's remember they're historical books, they're God's story, and we study them, of course, to know more about God, but we also study them to learn where we are in this story, because God's story is continuing, and he is sovereignly moving all the world events to the end of his story, and through the prophets and through the book of Revelation— God's given us the scenes. He's given us the information we need to know about how the story will end one day. He's told us that one day, Jesus Christ will return. But it won't be a quiet, little, um, obscure event in Bethlehem, unmarked by many people. It will be a big event, and on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Every person on this earth will recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah. And God tells us that there will be a great day when all the people who are God's people, all the people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they will be united with God and they will live as his people forever. That's the great storyline God has written, and he is creatively working it out in our world. And he gives us each a part to play. So that's why we study these history books, to learn more about God and to learn about our part in his great story. In all the history books, we always see two things. We see first God showing the world who he is, showing his people who he is. And then we always see his people or the world responding. Now, there are multiple ways to respond to God. That's what keeps these history, these stories so interesting. But only one response to God is truly appropriate. But God has given us each a choice. We can choose to disregard God as he reveals himself to us. We can decide that he's not really all that relevant and we're not going to give him a significant role in our lives. Or we can choose to just reject him entirely. We can choose to live our lives our own way and according to our own purposes. Or the last choice— the only appropriate response to God. We can choose to turn to Him faith and to live with a heart of worship. That's what we see in the people in Ezra chapters two and three. We see them turning to God in faith and living with a heart of worship. <clears throat> I think it's important since we're going to talk so much about worship this morning, we need to define it just a little bit. Um, And we're defining worship by how God has defined worship, how he has described worship in his word. Worship is not a feeling or an experience or a performance that we watch. Worship is not one piece or one segment of our Christian life. Ladies, worship is a way of life. Worship is reverence, respect, extravagant admiration, devotion, all to an object of great esteem. Worship is the only right response to God. When he shows us who he is, the only appropriate response, the only appropriate choice is to to turn to him with a heart of worship. In our Bibles, we see lots of examples of worship. We see worship when times are good. Um, We talked a little bit last week in our history that when God first made the covenant with Abram and he offered him the land of Canaan and he showed him the land and he said, all this I'm going to give to you one day. Uh, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give you this land. This is from Genesis 12. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram worshipped. We see worship in other times when things are good. Um, When Jesus was born, the wise men and the shepherds worshipped. But we also see examples of worship when times are bad. In Job, Job 1.20, after learning that his children had all been killed in one instant and all his fortune and his property lost, at this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. So we see clearly from the way God has described worship, worship is not a feeling. We can worship when times are good, and we can worship when times are bad. And we also see that worship is incredibly valuable, because Satan desperately wanted worship um, from Jesus during the time that Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. From Matthew 4, 9, it says, Showing Jesus the whole world, Satan says, All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. So we can clearly make a case that worship is not a feeling or an experience. Worship is a way of life. Worship is a right response to God when we see who he truly is. And God values our worship. The books we're studying, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all about God rebuilding this group of people that he's called out to be his people. In their past, they had been disobedient. They had violated their um, agreement with God. So God shows the world who he is by, um, by exiling them, by lifting his hand of protection from them for a period of time. So that they could be purified. God's showing the world his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, righteousness because he can't tolerate their disobedient behavior. But then God shows the world who he is again by rescuing them and bringing them back and restoring them to this land and honoring his promise to give them this land and make them a great nation. God's showing the world there that he's merciful and he's faithful and he is a promise keeper. So God rebuilds them. He rebuilds their nation, their wall, their temple, their reputation, and most importantly, God rebuilds their hearts. There was so much to rebuild, but God shows us in the beginning of this book of Ezra that he begins with their hearts only god has the ability to transform our human hearts only god can do that and that's what we see here he begins with their hearts and everything else is a byproduct these chapters show the exiles returning to a true heart of worship and it's a proper response to seeing who god really is to experiencing his loving care and his faithfulness You know, as I studied this, um, I read several theologians, they talk about God's glory, and they'll always say God's glory is a two-part process. First, God generously reveals his glory to the world. He comes to the world and he shows us who he is, and man responds with worship. Giving glory back to God. So, glory is this two part process, and we see it in Ezra 2 and 3. This glory giving that comes from a restored heart of worship. <clears throat> I think we can really see attributes of a heart of worship towards God and these people. So, open your Bibles to Ezra 2 and start reading with me. <clears throat> This is a list of the exiles who returned. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. All right. So chapter two begins with this list of the Israelites who've chosen to leave Babylon and return to Judah. You remember we studied last week. Um, King Cyrus ordered a decree that all these people, all these Israelites living in Babylon as exiles, could now return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and rebuild their nation. The list here shows us who goes back, and the list shows us God's providence. Remember in chapter 1, it told us that all the people who left did so because God had moved their hearts. God moved the hearts of the people who are listed here in this list. Now, we've got a long list of very difficult names. Um, This happens several times in the Bible. We'll get a list like this. Sometimes they'll call it a genealogy. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm wondering in your personal Bible reading, have you ever come upon one of these lists and just skipped over it? I don't need to stumble through all those difficult names. I'm just going to skip to the end. I'll have to admit to you, I've done that a few times. When I was pregnant with my first little boy, um, for several weeks in a row, my dad would call me long distance, and he would give me suggestions of baby names. And they were always the most outlandish Old Testament names. And I would think, he's been reading these lists. He's been reading these genealogies And that's one use for this list, but there are others. God included them in scripture. That means they're profitable for us. There's something for us to learn. So we need to not skip over the list. Thank you for spending some time in this list. The first thing we notice in this long list of the people who are returning, we notice that the returnees are identified one of three ways. They're either identified by their family name. You see that in verse 3 when it says they are the descendants of All right. Or they're identified by their ancestral city. You see that in verse 21 when it says men of the city, men of Bethlehem. And it lists all these different cities. Or they're identified by the kind of work they do. By They're either Levites, temple servants descendants of Solomon's temple servants. The list is actually very important because proving their Jewish heritage was very important. You have to remember, we talked about this last week, the Israelites are God's chosen people. The promises of God are made simply to this group of people, not to any other nation. And God had promised this land of Canaan to the Israelites. It was their inheritance. It belonged to no one else. So, it was very important that they were pure in their heritage. Purity in their heritage was important, and that's what we see in the list. Purity is important. A heart of worship will be committed to purity. Now, please be aware this isn't a racial purity that's intended to demean or marginalize people from other nations. It's simply a purity that God prescribed I think it's really important that we, we focus on that. There is purity that God prescribes for His people all through His Word. And all through their earlier history, God had told them that the whole world would be blessed through their nation, through the Israelites. And for that reason, they are not to intermarry, but they are to remain pure racially. God's purpose in this, we talked about this again last week, was attached to his plan to bring the Messiah, to bring Jesus Christ into the world through this group of people. Specifically, he would bring them through the line of David, King David, Israel's second king, had a great heart for God. God made a promise to David that one of his heirs would remain on the throne forever. Jesus would come into the world and bless the world through the line of David, through the tribe of Judah, from the nation of Israel. In order for God to faithfully bring that about, he has prescribed purity for his people so that the line of David could one day produce Mary and Joseph and ultimately produce Jesus who was miraculously conceived. So all the promises of God had been made through a covenant with one group of people, the Israelites. They were promised this land. They were promised that they would become a great nation. And they were promised that the entire world would be blessed through them. All that happens in Genesis 12. Their ancestry is the link to the future promises. So pure ancestry is of utmost importance here. All right. Well, the people are identified by their family name and their family name. That means that they could either provide a written description or an oral history that linked their family name back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, or they were identified by their ancestral city. You might remember that when the Israelites first entered Canaan, the promised land, this happened in the book of Joshua, that specific areas were allotted to specific tribes. So if you were a documented landholder in that area, the only way that could happen would be that you were an Israelite, your ancestry was pure, and you were a member of that tribe. So those were two certain ways that you could confirm that you are an Israelite now the Levites are also listed we talked about this last week the Levites are from the tribe of Levi they were not given land but remember they were to assist the priests in the work of the temple so they were given Levitical cities and given the job of assisting the priest and then you see people who assisted in the temple musicians gatekeepers and temple servants Now, drop your eyes down to verse 59. This is the first time we see something very different in this list. The following came up from various cities, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And then the same thing happens in verse 62. It's talking about a group of priests, um, and it says, These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. From these passages, it seems harsh, but what we see here, proof of ancestry was required. Proof of your family lineage or proof of property ownership. This was important. If they couldn't prove their ancestry, they were still allowed to go. They're included in this list, but it was noted that their ancestry was unproved and they might be excluded at a later date. And if you want to know a little scene or a preview into the future, this issue, is going to come up again in the book of nehemiah so purity in their ancestry we can see from this list here that is very important proof of your family lineage or proof of property ownership those who couldn't prove it were still allowed to go but it would become an issue later on we see from the list they're very diligent in their efforts to maintain the purity that god had prescribed And we see it in this detailed list. God had prescribed purity and said it was of utmost importance. And we see the people responding to God by pursuing purity also. I think we have to stop here and consider the fact that the people knew what God had prescribed. They had that knowledge. They knew from the law. The law of Moses, what God had told them to do, the words and promises of God to Israel, and that's what enabled them to pursue purity. And it's the same for us. We have to know what God has prescribed all through His Word. All through this, he gives us prescriptions for purity. He prescribes purity in our sexual lives. He prescribes purity in our thought lives. He prescribes purity in our words, and our speech, and our business dealings with each other. He does this because he's our creator and he knows what's best for us. And he also does this because he wants us to fulfill our purpose. We are to live in a way that shows the world who God is. If our hearts are committed to responding rightly to God, just like the Israelites, we will choose to pursue purity in every area where God has prescribed it. Now, in case reading through this list made you uncomfortable because God is excluding people who couldn't prove or verify their ancestry, I think it's important to note that in their history, on occasion, God did sometimes include outsiders, but it was always an incident where it was an outsider who demonstrated great faith in God. Both um, the temple servants that are listed here in verse 43 and the descendants of Solomon's servants that are listed in verse 55, many historians and theologians believe that those servants, those did include foreigners. They included people who were probably conquered people, but who had demonstrated such great faith in God that they were brought into the family of God. But the important distinction here is that it was God in his providence and in his sovereignty sovereignty, who dictated when an outsider could be brought in and included into the family of faith. So that did happen, but it happened when God said it would happen. All right, the second important thing that we learn when we study this list is that the list shows and proves God's faithfulness. He had promised through the prophets that these people were going to be exiled in Babylon for a certain period of time, but not forever. He had promised that he would bring a remnant back. The list is the historical record, the historical proof that God was faithful to his promise. The list is what connects that first community of believers who'd received the promises of God. The list connects them to this group of believers. Everyone listed here is um, proof of God's faithfulness, but this is also evidence that these people are being given a new identity. They're no longer God's exiled people, cast off, sent away. Now they're God's faithful remnant, Coming back to receive the promises of God. Well, if you add it up, it'll add it up there for you. There were almost 50,000 who returned. That sounds like a lot, but relatively, this was not a big number, considering how many Israelites lived in Babylon. Those who returned, um, God moved their hearts And they were willing to leave the lifestyle and the security of Babylon. Now you have to think about this. God told them to settle down and live there, build houses, plant gardens, invest in the welfare of this place, and they did. And they actually became somewhat prosperous. You see here that they had um, male servants and female servants and singers and livestock that they were taking back with them. Even though they were exiles, they had established a level of comfort and security and even prosperity in Babylon and now they had an opportunity to leave all of that and go back to Jerusalem a city that was desolate and a wasteland a city that had been completely destroyed trampled burnt uninhabited it would take great faith to leave the comfort um and the security of Babylon and go back. But these people had faith in the promises of God and their actions, their pursuit of purity here. It testified to the world, their belief in God, their confidence that he would be faithful. So we really see here they're responding rightly to God and they're fulfilling their purpose. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 34:27. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. You see, it's that same thing again of God showing them who he is. He's their rescuer and their redeemer. And then them responding with a heart of worship, choosing purity, choosing to do things God's way because they're God's people. Our worship is always the same way. It's our response to God showing us who he is. Read with me in verse 68 here. This is after they have left Babylon, and the first thing we read is when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own town. Along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. What we see in this description here, we see their priorities, don't we? Remember, all these people had land somewhere in Judah. They they were landowners. But where do they go first? They make this long trip. Back to Israel, and they don't go first to their homes. They go first to the site of God's temple in Jerusalem. Now, you need to know there was no temple here. There was no foundation for a temple. There was no wall. But they go to that site because that site is important. And if you don't think this was a priority, some of these people traveled down around from Babylon. They passed their homes. They passed the area where they were property owners and went first to Jerusalem they don't stop off first because they're showing they're revealing the priority of their hearts a heart of worship prioritizes the things of God <clears throat> they begin at Jerusalem at the temple site and the first thing they do is give a free will offering lots of money needed to be collected to um, gather the provisions and the things necessary to begin the rebuilding work so that's what they do first then it tells you after they've done that then they disperse and they go to their own towns and they get settled and a few months later they return to Jerusalem as one man read with me in chapter 3 when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem then Jeshua son of Josedak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel Abel, son of Sheltiel and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Okay, so after a few months, they come back to Jerusalem as one man. This means totally united, all together, committed. To build the altar of the Lord and to offer sacrifices on it. Now, it's interesting. It tells us they're fearful. In spite of the fear of the people around them, they do this. You know, the nations around them had always been hostile nations and they were still hostile nations. It's really interesting. Common sense would say if you're fearful of the hostile people around you, what would you rebuild first? You would rebuild your wall. That was your primary defense structure. But they don't rebuild the wall first, even though they're in danger. They rebuild the altar first. And that truly shows the priority of their hearts. To really understand this, we have to understand the importance of the temple and the importance of the sacrificial system. Today, we have God's promise that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and turn to him salvation that God puts his spirit in us and his spirit dwells in us and never leaves us but in the old testament they didn't have that promise in the old testament the holy spirit was this reverential and awesome thing it did not necessarily rest within the the soul or the spirit of a person but God told them repeatedly that his presence his holy spirit would dwell in his temple from Deuteronomy 12:5, God describes this. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. Bring your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, what you vowed to give, freewill offerings, there, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. He's talking about. altar site in his temple. Later in that chapter, he refers to this site as the dwelling for God's name. So the temple was the place where God's spirit dwelt, the dwelling for God's name. When they make that place a priority, what they're really prioritizing is the presence of God. Seeking God's presence is their greatest priority. This is worship, this is responding to God, to realizing who he is by seeking his presence, and that's what they do. They make it a priority to approach God, and then they also make it a priority to build that altar and reinstitute these practices that give them access to God. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. It was a system of offering a sacrifice on God's altar, and it was a system that was prescribed by God. He had asked them to do it that way. We don't do it this way in the New Testament. He has prescribed something different for us today. But this was the way they would make a payment for their sin. This was the way they would stand right before God. Listen to Exodus twenty twenty four. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, your sheep and goat and cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. All right. We first see an altar in the Bible um, from Noah. You remember the story of Noah. God decides to destroy the entire world with a flood except for Noah and Noah's family. And God tells him, build an ark and stay on the ark where you'll be safe. When the land finally dries up and Noah comes off the ark and realizes God has saved him, Noah builds an altar. We saw the same thing with Abram, building an altar after God makes the promise with him. Over and over again, we see this. An altar is a response to an encounter with God. An altar is significant to being in the presence of God and being in a right relationship with God. Excuse me. All right. And offering sacrifices for sin on this altar, that was the way the people restored a right relationship with God because God prescribed it that way, and that's what's motivating them now. Everything we see in the story is about the people being restored, and so restoring the sacrificial system is a priority because it restores their right relationship with God. And it also helps them fulfill their purpose. Restoring the sacrificial system sets them apart as a nation and reveals the holy, righteous character of God to the people around them. That's exactly as they were supposed to live. Don't we really have the same purpose? To be in a right relationship with God and then to reveal God to all the people around us. I had to stop and think this was difficult to travel to Jerusalem to seek the presence of God, to travel all the way to Jerusalem to offer your offerings and your sacrifices. It was difficult, it was dangerous, it was time-consuming, and it was expensive. But they do that because seeking God's presence and seeking a right relationship with Him is their great priority. I had to wonder, how difficult is it for us? We don't have to travel to one special city, to one special sanctuary, and go to one special place. And we don't have to offer one special sacrifice. God has prescribed something different for us today, and he tells us that one perfect sacrifice has already been made for us. That's why we have God's Holy Spirit in us now. Hebrews 7, 27, this is talking about Jesus. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. excuse me, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as the perfect sin sacrifice, we are promised that God's Holy Spirit enters us and never departs. We don't have to travel a great distance. We don't have to go to a great expense to offer a sacrifice because Jesus has done it for us. That's how God has prescribed it for us today. But we do still have to make it a priority don't we? There's so many things in our world that distract us and take our attention away. We have to make it a priority to be still and know we're in the presence of God. So we make it a priority by escaping all these things that distract us and seeking God's presence because it's always available to the believer. Another way we make it a priority priority is we resist these repetitive sins in our lives because the Bible tells us these repetitive sins, they dull our spirit. They dull our sensitivity to God's spirit, to the Holy Spirit moving in us. So these are things that we can do to make the presence of God a priority in our lives. You know, we have in this remnant group of people such a great example to follow of people who prioritize the things of God. And because of their priority and their pursuit of purity, we can see God is renewing and rebuilding their hearts as only God can do. In response to God's mercy and His grace, in response to God's power that uses a pagan king and pagan hostile nations to bring them back and finance their rebuilding work, they respond to God in the only way possible. They respond with a heart of worship. All right, drop down. Let's read chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. <clears throat> Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought... Excuse me, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. I love that passage. I think the first sentence and the last sentence are probably the most important, the last. Though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid, they're offering sacrifices. That really shows their priorities. We're going to offer sacrifices before we even begin building this magnificent structure. The last sentence, also very, very important, in accordance with what is written in accordance with what was written in the law of moses in that short passage they repeat that phrase or that idea three different times they are being so careful to perform these tasks exactly as god had instructed them to do in his word this really shows us another aspect of worship a worshiping heart is always committed to obedience In accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, these Israelite people understood what was meant by the term law. Law was the first five books of the Bible, and they understood law meant the authoritative instruction from God, the revealed will of God. That's what that meant. How could they possibly ignore the authoritative revealed will of God? By doing these things, these sacrifices, and these offerings, exactly as God has prescribed, they show their desire to be responsive to God and his laws. Surely they remember that abandoning the laws of God, which probably began with just a little compromise, probably began with just hedging a little bit, but it began this downward spiral that ultimately led to their exile and their period where they were removed from the presence of God. So now, of course, embracing strict obedience, doing things exactly as God has prescribed, this is the most important thing to them now. So it tells us all that they do. They institute the morning and the evening sacrifices. God had prescribed this in Deuteronomy 29. Then they celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was a celebration with many offerings and sacrifices that God had described for them. They begin the process of offering the regular burnt offerings, Leviticus 1 through 6, God describes for them each very specific types of burnt offerings. These were the things they did to make atonement for their sin. They also start with the new moon sacrifices. New moon sacrifice means at the new moon. It happened at the first of every month. It's important here that these things happened on the first day of the seventh month, and that's important because the seventh month in their calendar was the equivalent of the Jewish New Year. It was also a month that contained a large number of these sacred festivals, all with sacrifices and offerings prescribed by God. So they come together as one man at this new year and they begin practicing all the special sacrifices and all the regular sacrifices that God had asked them to do. They put them all in place. The altar fire is lit. It's not going out because now the people have responded appropriately to God with obedience. Now, as I read this, I had to think a little bit and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going outside of the text here. This is just my opinion. But in my opinion, I don't think this is some mechanical rote obedience they're demonstrating here. I think it is an overwhelming desire to do what is right out of love and admiration and respect and gratitude to God. And I think that's the kind of obedience that pleases and delights God. You know, these um, regular burnt offerings, there are six chapters in Leviticus where in each chapter God is very specifically describing how this burnt offering. Should take place. And each one ends the same way. Very detailed description of how to do it. And at the end they put it on the altar and they light the fire. And in each chapter, as the fire is lit, the smoke goes up, and the words are, it was an aroma pleasing to the Lord. An aroma pleasing to God. Every time like that. I think um what we see here is strict obedience out of a desire to please the Lord. <clears throat> J.I. Packer says, keeping God's law is the truest expression of gratitude for grace. I think that's the obedience that we see here. I believe what's motivating them is a desire to please God, to be a beautiful aroma Um, rising up to God that pleases him. Listen to the way God described obedience in Deuteronomy 30. And again, this was part of their law. They had this information. God had told them earlier, I'm giving you all my commands. I'm giving you a choice. If you honor my law and my commands, it will go well for you. There will be blessing. If you don't and you're disobedient and you're unfaithful and you turn away, there will be curses and you'll be exiled. Listen to this description. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord, your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord, your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord, your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. The condition here was that they would return to the Lord with all their heart and all their soul. That's not some rule-following, grudging, do-the-right-thing kind of discipline. And it's definitely not some religion to practice. It's a transformed heart. God would call it a circumcised heart, and it's transformed to obey simply out of love and gratitude. I think that's what we see from them here So as I studied this, I thought, well, we have a great opportunity to evaluate our own obedience, don't we? Is my obedience simply to do the right thing, to look good in my Christian community, or to check it off my list? What do you think about that? Or what about, is my obedience a burden that I grudgingly comply with? Or is my obedience something I gladly offer to God because of his mercy and his grace in my life? One theologian said, God offers each of us a covenant of grace. Our obedience is the covenant we offer God in return. You know, we tend to think of worship as singing or praising or a performance but worship is a lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that is reflected in obedience. Listen to Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. All right, we see worship in their obedience. So now, here we are in the story. The sacrificial system is back in place. The altar is built. The fire is lit day after day, morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, followed by morning sacrifices. Their focus is on God. They are now God's people living in obedience to God's law, fulfilling their purpose, showing the nation around them who God is. Read with me chapter 3, verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. All right, they're beginning the work now to actually rebuild the temple structure and they're building it for God's glory. All through that verse, we see the providence of God. We see the providence of God in the fact that the building products are coming in from these neighboring countries of Sidon and Tyre, um, not necessarily companies, uh, countries that looked favorably on Israel, but countries under Persian rule, under the... Um, submission to King Cyrus so they must provide these materials Um, it's interesting that these are countries very rich in natural resources right there. Also interesting that these were the countries that supplied the original building materials the first time the temple was built. That is God's providence. We also see God's providence in that he has provided the leadership there. He's provided Zerubbabel. We talked about him a little bit last week. He was in the line of Israel's kings. So he was of kingly descent. He was a political ruler. He's also sent Jeshua, who is of priestly descent. So we've got a political ruler over Israel. We've got a spiritual leader over Israel. And then all all the Levites, they take the job of um, administering this big project and overseeing it. All right. They begin this project and drop your eyes down to verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. We have a beautiful description here of Celebration. Celebrating has long been considered a spiritual discipline, something that is so beneficial for us to practice because it draws us closer to God. It helps us understand His character. It helps us reflect on Him more. It it creates intimacy in our relationship with God when we participate in celebrations. So, a heart of worship celebrates, values it, prioritizes it. And in this example of celebration, we see praise for who God is and for what he's doing. We see great reflection and thanksgiving for who God has been in the past. And we even see remorse and repentance and grief over the previous injury and insult to God and to his honor. The words here are very specific. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. These were the exact words that David used when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the tabernacle. Remember, before they ever had a temple, they had a tabernacle, a very elaborate tent that they moved around with them. And when the ark was brought into the tabernacle, David praised and celebrated using these words. Later, his son Solomon built the glorious grand first temple for God. When the ark of the covenant was brought into the holy of holies, there was a celebration the same way for he is good. His love to Israel endures forever. You can read about those um, celebrations in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Both David and Solomon were kings. They were flawed men, but they were kings who had great hearts of worship. And so you see the people really repeating the exact same pattern of celebration here, reflecting on who God has been in the past and what he is doing now. The word that's used here for God's love, his love to Israel endures forever, is a very specific word. And it refers to God's covenant-keeping love, God's promise-keeping, God's faithful love. They are celebrating the fact that God alone is faithful. But then we see this other reaction, and at first it was a little puzzling. We see the older Israelites who remember the formal temple, they're weeping. Everyone else is shouting for joy, and they're weeping, and it tells us the sound of their weeping was great. Those who had experienced in their past Israel's rejection of God— those who had experienced the national shame of being carried away into exile and everything there being destroyed. But most importantly, I believe, those who had experienced God's name being profaned among all their surrounding nations, God's glory taking a beating, being tarnished because of Israel's unfaithfulness. These people, they are not shouting for joy at this celebration. They're weeping. And I think as they look back on God's dealing with them, they're experiencing grief and remorse and regret for this great dishonor to God's name. The prophet Jeremiah foresaw this, Jeremiah 31.9. He said, they will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. You see, a heart of worship wants God to be glorified and honored, never profaned. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. I believe this celebration is marked with joy, but it's also marked with grief and repentance. I believe they fully understood the phrase that we use today, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. They understood the damage that had been done in their relationship to God. You see in their past, Israel had become grace abusers. They had been resting in their special status and their special relationship as God's chosen people and sinking further and further into unfaithfulness and sin, perhaps offering empty sacrifices without any real devotion, choosing their own way, their own plans, their own purposes instead of God's plans and purposes, instead of pursuing God's honor and glory. They refused to fulfill their purpose to show the world who God was. What really needed to be fixed here was not changing their location, and it was not changing the building infrastructure. What had to first be fixed was their heart. They had to be restored to a heart of worship. Psalm 51:16 You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh god you will not despise I think they recognize here it's not ultimately about the sacrifice as much as it is about the heart that is offering the sacrifice <clears throat> Now they are behaving as true followers of God. They're offering their sacrifices um, from restored hearts, recognizing their sinfulness, recognizing the amazing grace and mercy of their God who brings them back and restores them. Again, we see that process, God showing them who he is, and they respond with worship. And look at that last line, and the sound was heard far away. If we want to look at these people as an example, we can look at them as an example of how to celebrate. We've just finished celebrating Christmas here, and in about two months, we're going to experience Easter. Maybe some of you have other spiritual markers or celebrations that will happen in that time. You know, over the Christmas holiday, I met a young woman who was visiting here from China. China is not known to be a Christian country. And she told someone um, when they asked her, do you have Christmas in China. And she said, oh, yes, in China, Christmas is when we go out and spend a lot of money and buy really expensive presents. And I had to think, oh, my goodness, how many people would describe our celebration of Christmas here the same way? So this is a great opportunity for us to take a look at our celebrations. What do they look like? Are they loud shouts that show the world who God is and what he's done for us? Is it a worshipful response to seeing God? Is it focused on God and his glory and his honor? And does it cause us to recognize who we really are in light of who he is? How might we make our celebrations more about God's glory and honor than anything else? That's a great question. Only you can answer it. Only you can determine how you will worship God. But in these people, this remnant of Israel returning to God, we have a great example to follow. Worship has never been something we observe but don't participate in. Worship has never been a performance that someone else does for us. Worship is a choice. Every moment, every day, worship is a choice, regardless of how you feel. Regardless of whether things are good or things are bad, you can choose to trust the promises and the providence of God. Even when your heart is breaking, even when the future is unknown, even when things seem uncertain, we can choose to place our trust in God and pursue Him in worship. Trusting that He is writing all of the story. We know the beginning. We have it right here. We know the scenes for the end. We have that right here, too. We can trust that he is still writing the story during this time in the middle. We can trust that he's writing the story for each one of our own lives. Remember last week we talked about providence. Deb said it's all of life under God's control for the purpose of revealing Jesus. That means God is writing the story for our lives, making all the events come under his control for the purpose of revealing Jesus. In their past, the Israelites had turned away from God, and they had fulfilled—they had failed to fulfill their purpose of proclaiming God to the world. But when their hearts are restored, look at how this chapter ends. And the sound was heard far away. It's the sound of Israel fulfilling her purpose. So we're just like them. God has written each of our stories, and he's given us each the same purpose. We are to show the world who God is. So that is my charge to you. Let your life be a life of worship that shows the world who God is, and let that be the sound that is heard all around. Thank you.